0: welcome to Prodigal Church. My name is John. I'm the pastor here, and uh, this You, Me, We series is going to be incredible. We're going to have a ton of fun throughout it, lots of different fun elements, and so uh, one thing I want to encourage you is that some of you I know that some of you guys are uh, single, some of you guys are dating, some of you guys are married. No matter what season you're in, I believe God has something for you this morning and throughout this series, but if you are in in a dating relationship or you're married, and I know sometimes our, uh, our significant other has to work on Sundays, and they can't make it. And so uh, uh, I want to encourage you this, throughout this whole series, whether you, you know, both of you can attend together or not, but to, uh, if they're not here, encourage them to listen to it or watch it online, and then you two discuss it. At some point during the week, uh, after the kids go to bed or at dinner, whatever it is, uh, you two talk through what was said here and just help build that communication between you both. And uh, I think it's going to be an encouraging series for all of us. Last week, I mentioned that Sarah and I met in the fall of 1996. We were at youth group, and um, I noticed her, and our eyes met after church in the back of the youth room. I knew nothing about her, but after our eyes met, I was done for. Um, and now I've got to go up to her, and I've got to talk to her, right? I've got to say something to her. And you want to—you've got to kind of plan this out, right? You've got to kind of sound like you're cool. And so I'm trying to impress her. So I walked up to her, kind of as cool as I can be, and I— you know, I say something like, you know, hi, I'm, I'm John, uh, I'm not Pete, I, I have a twin brother, you may have thought that I have, t- he, he was, it was him, but it's not him, it's me, I'm John, hi. And, uh, and I could tell she was nervous too, because, you know, she had to think of something really quick and said something like, you know, hi, I'm Sarah, and I was like, I read you. And uh, <laughs> she said, hi, I'm Sarah, but really what she was saying was, give me your number. And so I read between the lines, and, and it worked because immediately, four years later, we started dating. So our first date was mini golf, uh, Blackbeard's Family Fun Center. We went with two other couples, and I just wanted to be close to her. And so anytime she made like a putt, i kind of give her like a side hug, yay, you know, great job. And, and then, but she wasn't that good of a golfer, so she barely ever, you know, had a great shot. And so... Uh, so then like I heard, I gotta change my strategy. I hear like a six year old boy gets a hole in one like three holes away from us. And I'm like, yay, oh, Yay! hole in one, y- yay, yay, you know? And uh, we're walking back uh, to the car at the end of the night. And um, I kind of make some, you know, flirty banter. And I was just like, well, we would have won if it wasn't for you. And she's like, huh? And then she kind of does like a, like a side booty bump, okay? <laughs> And I was like, ah, that, yeah, that's cute. And then, so I kind of, you know, and I, I get her a little bit. And then like when I'm not really paying attention, she really winds up and she's just and like, I, and so now I'm like, okay, this, this is kind of a fun game, but I think I'm gonna win. And I wind up and I booty bump her so hard, she falls into the mud. No joke, into the mud. I felt, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I didn't, I don't know the power of my own hips, I'm sorry my hips don't lie, and throughout, now we've been married, uh, we dated for five and a half years, and we have been married for 13 years, and we certainly don't have this relationship thing figured out, but we're learning more and more every day, every year, and throughout this You, Me, We series, Uh, we're going to look at God's heart for love, dating, sex, and marriage, and the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about these issues. But let's start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there were six days of creation, okay? Day 1, God separated light from darkness, and God said it was good. Day 4, the sun, moon, stars, Jupiter, Pluto, Pluto, which is still a planet, by the way, and God said it was good. Day five, the sea creatures, Nemo, Willy, God said it was good. Birds of the air, Toucan Sam, the Vlasic pickle guy, God says it was good. Creatures of the land, Tony, Simba, Porky, God says it was good. And then, in chapter 2 for the first time we find God saying that something is not good. It's chapter 2 verse 18 it says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a him a helper as his partner. It is not good for people to be alone. God desires relationship for you, not isolation. Now, I'm not saying that everybody here needs to get married. Actually, the Bible elevates singleness over marriage. We'll talk more about that uh, later. But God doesn't want you to be isolated. He desires a relationship for you. Being single doesn't mean being isolated. What relationships do you have in your life that are helping you be all that you're called to be in Christ? Single doesn't mean isolated. We need relationships. God desires for relationships. It's not good for you to be alone. Uh, Now, we read this verse last week, but I think it speaks something new to us this morning, something new about yourself, about me. Look at Luke 10. It says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the prerequisite here for loving your neighbor? Now, we focus so much on loving your neighbor, but you can only love your neighbor to the level that you, what? Love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you can't figure out how to love somebody else if, in a relationship if you haven't figured out how to love yourself in singleness. How many of us have skipped this part of the process? What often happens is this, is we skip what God wants to teach us in singleness, and then we expect the other person to complete us, to fill us up, and you're mad all the time because you don't feel like you're enough. You don't feel good enough. You're supposed to make me enough. Now you're not good enough, and you put on some weight. And none of that matters because your spouse will never be able to fill the emptiness that you never became okay with that God was supposed to fill when it was just you and him. And you're expecting your spouse to fill that part of you. And, and God says, no, no, I fill that. So what is sing- singleness for? You're single because God wants to champion something in you. To be free from distractions, to love God and yourself in a greater way. He wants to foster a way of seeing the world that fits where you are right now in this season. And Paul spent most of 1 Corinthians 7 advocating for singleness because it uh, it gives you liberty away from all the concerns and worries and stresses that we have in marriage. Often, both people... Both married people and single people miss out on what God has for them in their season because they're thinking about another season. The single person pines away his life or her life, dreaming about how life's going to be in the future when uh, we're married, when uh, I have that season of life. But then the married man or woman romanticizes about the freedom that they enjoyed when they were single. They can do whatever they want. I do not want you to do this. I don't want you to miss out on what you have access to in your single years that you will not have access to when you're married. And I don't want you to miss the benefits of now because you're fixated on the benefits of then. Don't miss the benefits of now because you're fixated on the benefits of then. The then of the future, when I'm finally married, and also the then of the past, longing for the days of old when you can do whatever you want you didn't have all these responsibilities. And kids. While you're looking for him, or you're looking for her, God is trying to reveal to you why he has you right her. write her, right now. You're dreaming about her, and God's saying, no, 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 focus in on right her. Right here, right now. This is the season I have you in. Don't lose this. Savor it. Learn. We've convinced ourselves that we'll be happy once we get there, And God wants you to focus in right here, right now. So God says on the sixth day of creation, it's not good for a man to be alone. Verse 21 says this, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Notice that the first time a man ever sees a woman in the Bible, uh, he breaks out into poetry. Uh, Adam says, alas, bone of my bone, flesh to my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In English, it doesn't sound like it's that good of poetry. In Hebrew, it's beautiful. Um, in verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The Jewish tradition, the Jewish scriptures, it says that they say that God did not create woman out of man's head so that he would rule over her. God did not create her out of his feet so that she could be trampled on, but God created woman out of his rib next to him to be closest to his heart, to be with him. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, the word here in Hebrew and also in the later Greek for be- become is in the continuous action or, uh, verb, meaning it's something that's not past tense. It's something that continues to happen. It's not a one-time thing. We think of, oh, they become one flesh. That means, oh, the uh, you know, that means sex. Well, now that we're married, you know, we're one flesh. But the continuous action verb says, no, 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 becoming one flesh is a process that happens again and again and again. It's not a one-time thing. Because just because you said, I do, and you feel like one flesh doesn't mean that you are. It's a continual process of meshing and learning and mending and growing, learning about each other and from each other. It is a process. We're always still becoming one flesh. It's a lifelong process, not a one-time thing. You never stop becoming one flesh. Marriage is so much more than a good wedding. Have you ever seen a couple on TV, and one of them says, come on, let's get married. And then the other person says, you don't need a piece of paper to, I don't need a piece of paper to tell you that I love you. Who needs marriage? We've all seen something like this. That completely misunderstands the essence of marriage. It's not about feelings. The essence of marriage is covenant. It's a promise. If you just look at the vows, whenever I officiate lots of weddings, it's one of the best parts of my job. it's something it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing um, to be there as people are pledging their love, commitment and fidelity to the other person. It's, it's an amazing thing. And in the vows, it is never "I promise that I do love you. It's. I promise that I will love you. Sickness, health, better, worse, richer, poorer, good times, bad times. You're never saying, I promise that I do love you. It's, I promise that I will love you. It's a promise for the future. There's just something about this vows, the vows that that is beautiful. This is why we cry at weddings. There is something special about what takes place. And in our culture, we think that the purpose of marriage is to make us happy, and it's not. The purpose of marriage isn't to make us happy, it's to make us holy. In our culture, we've been taught that the purpose of marriage— you know, my spouse makes me happy. Typically we think, well, I'll be the spouse I ought to be when they're the spouse they ought to be. But if the purpose of marriage is to make the other person better, it's I will love you sacrificially. I will be the spouse that I ought to be, whether you will or not. Because that's what Jesus did for me, not because I was lovely, but so that I could become more lovely through him. I'm going to do this. That's what love is. It's, it, is it is a continual sacrificial action. It's like this. It's that in marriage, you see the other, and you see the glory of the other. You see what they're called to be, who they're called to be. Following Jesus and being married is like trying to find a mountain on a cloudy day. You watch, and you watch, And there begins to be a wind, a swirl. For a moment, you can make out the mountain in the sky and you see the sun shining on the mountain and it takes your breath away. You get a glimpse every so often of the glorious person your spouse is becoming. And you see it. And you say, yes, that's the Spirit of God moving you to be who God has called you to be. Marriage and falling in love is like that. I want the radiance and light of Sarah to be more and more evident every single day, and she wants that for me. Marriage is, has to be that kind of relationship, that kind of friendship. The common horizon for both people in marriage is that we see in the other all that they can be in Christ, and we journey together to get there. In this way, marriage isn't recreational, it's recreational it has the ability to completely upend the darkness within me. Your entire self-image, my entire self-image, your entire self-image, is a compilation of verdicts that have been passed on to you about, by things that people have said about you, or to you, okay? And your own almost self-worth is from all of these verdicts that are passed on. Now, when you get married, your spouse has a supernatural ability to overturn all those verdicts in a single word. The, They can reprogram your self-appreciation. Your spouse can say, I don't care what everyone else says. I don't think you're dumb. You're smart. You can be somebody. You are somebody. You're bright. And you will. You'll begin to live in that reality. And if everyone says you're not going to amount to anything, but your spouse thinks that you're significant, you will make a difference, and you will start to feel and be the significant spouse that you're called to be. The opposite is true as well. If your spouse starts to say, I think you're lazy, and you'll never amount to anything, that completely destroys you. When you get married, you put the power to make or break you in their hands. No one can wound you like your spouse can. This is why our words hurt more from them. You thought you were holding a BB gun when you said that comment, but it was a rocket launcher. And now the other person is just a pair of sneakers with smoke coming out. We've all been there in the fight, right? If you use your ability to affirm and uplift, and rewrite who your spouse thinks they are, the more you affirm, the easier it is for your spouse to open up about their own faults, and be honest with themselves about them. Because they have this cradle of security, of love, and encouragement from you. And they know their value, and their beauty, because you've told them again and again and again. They become more and more their glory self. More and more who they're called to be, and their light starts to shine brighter every single day. If everything around you is weak, but your marriage is strong, it doesn't matter. You move out in the world in strength. And if everything around you is strong, but your marriage is weak, it doesn't matter what's out there. You move into the world in weakness. Marriage has this tremendous power to bring such beauty into the world and into our lives, or tremendous pain and difficulty. And we just want to say this. Many of us in this place have, have had uh, some really bad negative relationships. Many of us have experienced the pain of divorce. And we just want to say, there's no judgment. Uh, life is messy. Life is hard. Uh, God loves you m- more now than he ever did. That is true for every second moving forward. And so regardless of whatever decisions have been made in the past, God has a plan for you right here, right now, and in the future. Um, We all want a strong marriage, whether now or in the future. And we're going to talk more about this in the next couple of weeks. But here's a great next step. Acknowledging that this, that my self-centeredness is the main problem in my marriage. Some of you are having a panic attack right now because it's not your self-centeredness that's the problem in marriage. It's your spouse's. When you get married, it doesn't take long to realize how selfish the other person is. and You start realizing, and your spouse starts to realize how selfish you are. It's, it's funny how your selfishness is never bad as the selfishness as the other person. This happens in marriage. You see their selfishness, self-centeredness, as way worse than yours. And your spouse calls us out. But we think, well, you don't understand. I mean, mean, yeah. Like, I meant to do that, but like, you don't... I I have excuses, right? They're selfish, but we have good reasons. You don't know all the things that I do for you. I've had a really hard day. She knew it would mean a lot to me if she did this, but she didn't do anything. She does nothing to help me. She only thinks about herself. When that happens, you can keep fighting the same battles you've always fought, or you can do something different. You can decide that as a Christian, I am going to determine that your selfishness is more serious than the other person's. Try this exercise. That you're going to treat your faults as worse than their faults. You're going to act on the selfishness that has been revealed and reported to you, regardless of what the other person is doing. You're going to treat your own self-centeredness as more important than the self-centeredness in the other. And when two people do that at once, you truly have the possibility to have a great marriage. The mistake many people make is that they think that the conflict marriage has brought you is with your spouse, not a bit, not one bit. The confrontation that marriage brings you is not with your spouse, but with yourself. Marriage is a mirror. Marriage is a mirror. It doesn't reveal the self-centeredness in the other person. It reveals the self-centeredness in you and in me. It forces you to look in the mirror. It grabs you by the face and says, look at these things inside yourself. And I am ashamed to tell you how many times God has used Sarah to reveal unrighteousness in me. Here's how dumb I am. Sarah and I are in a fight. I'm sorry, intense fellowship. And and in the middle of an argument or a disagreement, Sarah becomes a lawyer. She becomes like Matlock, okay? She doesn't lose any cases. And there is this point in the argument where I begin to see that she is right, but do I confess and admit that that I'm right? No way, I keep fighting. And eventually, at some point in the fight, in her frustration, it, it, it... to, in her frustration with me, that I refuse to see the plank sticking out of my own eye, she eventually says something, maybe mean or below the belt, okay? And finally, I'm like, yes, she said something wrong. Now I get to demand the apology. And so then I, I demand her to apologize. You said that, and that is so mean, that's below the belt. You know, so then, then she does apologize, and then and only then do I then apologize for the thing that started the whole thing altogether. I'm a horrible husband. (laughs) How do we get out of this cycle? Here are three things that I've come to understand as being absolutely essential for a thriving marriage. And they'll be on the screen. Uh, I encourage you to take a picture of it, write it down. Here's three things. And then evaluate this with your spouse, your significant other. Evaluate how you guys are doing it. Here's the three things. The ability to hear criticism without being crushed. The ability to give criticism without crushing. And the ability to forgive the other without, without residual anger. These three things. Do these three things, your marriage will thrive. The ability to hear criticism without being crushed. That is so difficult, right? Because they're calling you out on stuff, and you know that you affected them, and all you want to do is defend And then you might be right, but can you say, can you call your spouse out? Can you you confront them on their bad actions without crushing them? Can you give criticism in a beautiful, godly way that affirms and challenges? And can you forgive without holding that over their head? Oh, it's so hard. And the Bible says the exact same thing. Let me read these fast. James 1.19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That's usually not us. Colossians 4.6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Full of grace. So when you call your spouse out, and you know they did something wrong, and you, I got them. I know, I didn't do anything wrong. I double-checked. I made sure. I checked the list. I didn't do anything wrong. They did something wrong. Is it going to be seasoned with salt? Is it going to be with Grace? Then Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Is. Am I reading your mail? Okay. Is this speaking to you at all? Is this you and your marriage? The chances are probably. We're going to talk more about conflict and we're going to talk more about love and we're going to talk more about intimacy. All that in the weeks to come. But my challenge for us is to know that this, love is this. Love is the Jesus-looking choice to relate to someone as infinitely valuable, because they are. I invite knowing and the band to come up, and we'll close with a song, but a man and his wife talked about their financial needs, and the husband was forced to ask for a raise the very next day. And the boss, and so he's, he's nervous, and the wife's nervous about it, so he leaves, and he goes, today I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask. I know I deserve it, and I know that we could use it, So I'm going to do it. And so he gets to his office and the boss decides, you know what, he's worth it. And the man couldn't wait to get home tell his wife. So he walked in the house and he blurted out, honey, guess what, I got the raise. Then he noticed that his wife had made this wonderful meal. Candles were lit on the table. He wondered who had tipped her off that he got the raise. So his wife placed a note on the table and said, honey, I knew that you would get the raise and all the little things that I've done for you tonight is to show you how much I love you. And as his wife walked away from the table at dinner, she accidentally dropped a note from her pocket. He picked up the note and it said, Honey, I'm sorry you didn't get the raise. All the little things I've done tonight for you is to say how much I love you. More important than any of those was this memory that his wife left of unconditional love, not based on what he did or what he didn't do, but lifting him up where he was. Can we find a way to... Do the Jesus-centered, Jesus-looking choice to relate to our spouse, our significant other, as infinitely valuable? Can, can we take our singleness in this season and, and appreciate what's right before us instead of dreaming o- away of the future? God has you in the season for a reason. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that your word speaks to uh, the deepest desires of our hearts. And we thank you, God, that um, our significant others, are, are, they reveal us. And sometimes it's not a pretty sight to see. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the strength and humility to receive constructive criticism without being crushed by it and to do something about it. And that, God, that, that we would also all of our conversations with our spouse, that somehow negativity comes home and affects our home and we can be more negative than we can out in public. And so, God, I pray that our, our, our talk, our words would be seasoned with salt; that they would be full of grace. God, I pray that we would forgive as you have forgiven. And we pray, Lord, for those marriages who are going through some really difficult times. We pray, God, that, that yeah, these next few weeks would be a catalytic moment that brought, draws them closer to you and to each other. And God, for those of us in this place who, who were just like, man, I, I, I wish I was married. I should be married. I should be in this stage of life and I'm in this stage of life. God, I pray that you would give them supernatural affirmation and contentedness in the season of singleness. So God, draw us closer during this season. We pray that what you have done before that you would do again in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare that together?